It's Wednesday, April 18th, 2018. Welcome to the Philly Press Box Radio Roundtable, brought to you by the Irish Rover Station House in Langhorne, PA. I'm Bill Furman. I'll be your host tonight, along with my partner, Jim Chet Chesko. Chet, another great week on the Philly sports scene. The Sixers are 1-1 one one in their playoff series of the Miami Heat. The Flyers just getting underway tonight are down 2-1 in their playoff series with the Penguins. They need a big win tonight. The Phillies are 10-6 and six and two games behind the Mets. But, Chet, tonight we're going to talk about those Super Bowl 52 champion Philadelphia Eagles with a draft just a week away. Yeah, Bill, in many recent years, we didn't have any basketball or hockey playoffs to discuss in mid-April. We will get to some of that in the latter part of the show. But as you said, we've got plenty of draft talk to focus on here at the top of the show. So let's get it going. Well you, well, you know it. This is one of my favorite shows of the year. We get to talk the NFL draft, and there's no better one to talk about it with than our man, Fran Duffy, joining us for the fifth draft. And, Fran, welcome back. It's hard to believe the first time we had you with us was May 7th, 2014, four years and now five drafts ago. Welcome back. No, I appreciate you guys having me. It's always fun. Hey, Fran. As Bill noted, we and our listeners do look forward to this one every year. Fran, we'll talk about all of the likely first-round picks, throw in a few sleepers for later rounds, and much more we should mention. Fran Duffy is the video content manager for the Philadelphia Eagles and a true draft expert. All right. Now, Fran, before we get to talk about the, the draft and all the other good stuff, as a member of the Eagles organization, i got to ask you, how was the week of February 4th for you? Were you at the Super Bowl? I'm sure you enjoyed being a part of the parade. How did it all feel for you personally? I mean, it was, you know, you, you live your whole life thinking about what, that moment and if it's going to ever come. And, you know, growing up an Eagles fan and being able to experience it was just, uh, it was surreal. You know, everything about it from – uh, making the trip out there, and obviously, look the the win over Atlanta and the win over Minnesota. Uh, the journey was outstanding, and everything from that season was outstanding. But you know, the number one, the win over the Patriots. The, the, you know, going back and beating the team that beat us back in January of 2005, uh, and then the parade was just uh, everything about it. Just the entire week was you know something you'll never forget. Obviously, absolutely. All right, now now the task is to try to repeat. So, Fran, despite being Super Bowl champions, Howie Roseman and Joe Douglas certainly aren't standing pat. They've made a bunch of moves already, and there could be more to come, not even counting the draft. Is there a risk of making too many moves? No, I don't think so. I think that, you know, Howie Roseman said it at the Combine in February, is that, you know, if you, if you do stand pat and if you do just kind of sit back in your laurels and say, all right, well, we just won. We don't need to tinker with too much. That's how you get beat. And so, you know, every, every team around you is looking to get better. We see all these other teams in, uh, in the NFC are gearing up. Obviously, the L.A. Rams have made a lot of headlines, but uh, all these teams are going to be getting better. Minnesota's got a new quarterback, and they're ushering in a new offense. Green Bay is going to be healthier this year. Uh, the New Orleans Saints are trying to add more pieces. You know, it's – uh, all those those top teams are all looking to get better. So, uh, you know, it, it would be it would behoove the Eagles to continue to try and improve this roster. And I think through free agency, through the first part of it, they absolutely uh, were able to do that with some of the big additions. Well, Fran, you, you mentioned the parade. I want to back up to that for just a second. But what was it like actually being on the other side of the parade? I mean, did, could you have ever dreamed that instead of being one of those fans running around <laughs> with a cooler – <laughs> you were going to be uh, you were going to be one of the guys in the parade itself. That's got to be uh, pretty amazing. If you told ten uh, year old me that I was going to be in it, I, I would have you know I would have fainted on the spot. It was it was everything you would have imagined it would be, Bill. It was uh, it was outstanding. You know, being able to really kind of take in that whole experience with with all of the fans that were there, and uh, you know, I don't care what the numbers you know were reported initially. There was thousands of people there it was it was a blast it was such a great party it was a, it was a ton of fun well as, as you look at the season and how it unfolded and it, i mean it was it was far beyond i think what any of us ever dreamed was going to happen it, as far even when without winning the super bowl just the way the eagles just played so good week in and week out and i guess my question to you is what really surprised you the most as the whole thing played out the way it did I mean, really, look, I was really high on the team going into the season, and I thought that they had the ability to compete. But if you told me a year ago today that 
you know, this team was going to lose Carson Wentz and they were going to lose Jordan Hicks and they were going to lose Jason Peters and Darren Sproles and you keep going down the list, all these other players uh, that were so integral to the roster uh, and still find a way not just to, to get into the playoffs and, you know, win a game, but get to the Super Bowl and beat New England, beat Tom Brady, beat Bill Belichick, uh, you know, I would have found it to be unbelievable. And so it, to me, uh, the – uh, the ability for this team to fight through adversity, uh, all those guys stepping up into new roles or, you know, really just taking on uh, a larger sense of responsibility. You saw all these guys step up uh, when their number was called and play at a high level when, when it counted most. That, that, to me, was the most remarkable thing and what makes that group from last year so special. You mentioned the injury to Carson Wentz and, of course, the job Nick Foles did taking over, uh, going all the way to the Super Bowl and getting the win. I know you don't have a definitive answer here, but do you expect the trade talk to intensify as we get closer to draft day? Do you think the offers are going to get better and better as we move into next Thursday? Yeah, I, that's tough to say. I, I, was, I, have, I have no idea what talks you know, look like, if, if they exist or how much they exist. Uh, that's, that's tough to say, Chet. All right. Hey, uh, speaking of quarterbacks, we heard from Carson Wentz on Tuesday. He said he's on or ahead of schedule and still expects to be ready for week one in September. We hope so. But what's the latest on linebacker Jordan Hicks? He's another key guy, of course. Uh, any word on his recovery? Yeah, he, he spoke on Tuesday as well and said that he's working through and recovering and he's you know looking to be back uh, this summer as well. So, um, so, yeah, all those guys, you know, it, it's interesting that since all those guys got hurt, they've all been kind of able to rehab together. And that's really been uh, one of the things to kind of follow through social media, all those guys, you know, posting videos of themselves working out, and, uh, you, know, getting, you know, getting together and doing all the things that they do in terms of their rehab uh, on a daily basis has, has really been fun. Cool. Hey, Fran, I mean, what can you say about the job Doug Peterson and his staff did? I think uh, – you know, you did you did a great job throughout the year with all your video work that you do and posting your eagle eye and all that and catching uh, a lot of the actions of Doug Peterson that, and it was just tremendous. So, I mean, how do you how do you think he was able to mold this team in such short order uh, with the leadership team that he put together and uh, everything just seemed to fall in place and it all has to go back to, to Doug. Of course, you got to go to Howie too, but uh, from the player standpoint, to Doug. Yeah, I mean, they, he knew what buttons to push, when to push them, both on and off the field. You know, he built a culture in the last two seasons uh, in that locker room, and guys absolutely 1,000% bought in uh, at every single position group, offense and defense. Uh, you saw the complete buy-in from those guys. And then on the field, I think, you know, offensively, what I love about his scheme is that he's just so multiple. They find different ways to attack you uh, on a weekly basis through the passing game. They have so many different schemes up front in the run game. So uh, you're constantly keeping defenses guessing. Do they have their staples? Absolutely. But they found so many different ways to get to those staples, and that's what made it so hard to defend. And then uh, on the other side of the football, you know, the job that Jim Schwartz and the defensive staff did uh, of finding new ways and creative ways to get after the quarterback. We saw so many different ways that they were able to line up with Fletcher Cox and Brandon Graham and those guys on the inside and allowing that rotation at defensive end to kind of take hold. And we saw that, uh, you know, come to fruition in the Super Bowl as well. That, that key sack fumble was with Brandon Graham lining up inside and all the different things they did uh, up front and in coverage as well. Uh, no one would have expected that Patrick Robinson would have had the kind of season that he had. And I think that speaks to Jim Schwartz and his scheme and just knowing how to use of his players and get the most out of them. Uh, to me, that's what really you know makes this staff so special is that they found the best way to leverage the most out of their players on both sides of the ball. Well, and, and you led me right into my next question. I think if we all sat here even uh, before opening opening game in the preseason, we we all had questions about that defensive backfield, and they played fantastic through the year. I guess. Were we all wrong on the on the talent evaluation, or does this go back to Jim Schwartz and his schemes? Probably a little bit of both. You know, I, I've always been a big Jalen Mills fan, and so there were a lot of people that were worried about Jalen Mills. And, you know, I, I love the kid. I think he's going to be a starter in Philadelphia for a long time, would be my guess. And, uh, you know, the, the, everything that he brings to the table, I know that, you know, he's going to bite on a double move every once, you know, once in a while. Everybody gets beat in the NFL. That's the nature of playing cornerback in this league. Uh, so, to me, that, that doesn't bother me. I love his competitiveness. 
I love his ball skills. I love his uh, his toughness on the perimeter and everything that he brings. You look at it, just that entire secondary. Obviously, Howie Howie Roseman doing a great job uh, in the summer going and getting a Ronald Darby. You know, they got they have youth there as well. This was a position that everybody was so worried about before the draft last year, and now to think that it is a position of strength at corner uh, is, is just crazy. Now, at this point in the uh, in the off season, it's going to be really really interesting to watch that group really kind of gel and coalesce and develop together uh, over the course of the next few seasons. All right, friend, we're going to talk a little draft now, and uh, we'll get to your big board, you know, the whole first round later on during our time with you. But uh, just a couple general questions first. There's likely going to be four or five or maybe even six quarterbacks taken in the first round of the draft next week. How do you rate this group of quarterbacks overall? Are any of them can't miss guys? I don't know that any of them are can't miss players, but, you know, in terms of the guys that I feel best about, number one would be Sam Donald. And, uh, you know, was his tape perfect this year as a redshirt sophomore? No. Uh, you know, there were times where he was a little bit erratic with his accuracy. And I think, to me, when I watched it, because I've watched him for the past two years, I watched him as a freshman in 2016 as well, and I didn't see as many of those issues pop up. To me, they were more mechanical, especially in his lower body. And, you know, those are things that I think you can correct uh, with reps and with uh, added work during the offseason. I think he can get through that and battle through that. So, to me, I look at, at, uh, at Sam Donald, and I see a player – who's a good decision maker. He's a really quick processor of information. He's got answers for everything that the defense throws at him. The one, the one big issue that I'd like to see him get corrected, and he's gonna, he knows it, he's talked about it this offseason, is the turnovers and namely the fumbles in the pocket. Uh, he, had a, he put the ball on the ground far too often last year, and that was an issue for him, that ball security uh, while he's getting through his reads and while he's uh, trying to make a play downfield. He's got to take better care of the football. Uh, but to me, he's got the requisite arm strength. He's got the requisite accuracy. Uh, you see that decision-making, the movement in the pocket, everything about Sam Darnold to me uh, speaks to being more of a franchise quarterback than some of these other guys. The next for me would be Josh Rosen, who on the field is cl- the cleanest of all these guys. Uh, the major question with him, number one, is his durability. Everybody talks about the personality stuff, and you know everybody's going to view that differently. To me, uh, I don't see any uh, – look, I've, only, I've spoken with him one time, and it was at the Combine in February – uh, so I can't speak firsthand on what he's like off the field. Uh, you can only go off the reports. But uh, medically, you know, he had shoulder surgery after his sophomore season, and then he had uh, reportedly a couple concussions this past season as a junior. So you worry about the durability. He is a little bit of a leaner frame guy. So, uh, you know, his ability to hold up because he's not a great athlete. He's not a guy that's going to create for himself in the background. We see Carson Wentz and what he's able to do with his mobility. Sam Darnold is able to do that as well. Josh Rosen doesn't have that trait. So uh, that's going to be the one thing I think you're going to worry about with him is his ability to stay healthy. But on the field, I would say he is the cleanest of this group. I would say then you probably have in the next tier Josh Allen, uh, who obviously has extremely high upside. He's got the size, the athleticism, the arm strength. The the flashes are outstanding. It's just a a matter of consistency. And accuracy was an issue for him. Decision-making, I thought, got a little bit better from 2016 to 2017. He didn't do as uh, bad a job at forcing throws, especially in the middle of the field, late in the down as he did uh, as a sophomore in 2016. Um, But you look at Josh Allen, really the big thing is he's got to process things quicker. He's got to see things faster. And he's got to just be more consistently accurate with the football. And a lot of people are worried that that's not something that you can teach because even when things are clean for him, he will miss some throws. So that will be a concern for him. I still think that you know, I'm a believer in the kid and what he can be. I know everything about him uh, in terms of his personality says that you know he's a great kid and he's a hard worker and he's everything you want. So uh, I'm excited for him. I just hope that he doesn't go to a situation where he's going to be forced to play right away. And then next I would say you throw Baker Mayfield in there. And, and to me with Baker Mayfield, you love the accuracy. You love his ability to create in the backfield. Uh, the major question I have, and he does throw it better uh, than I would seeing him throw live. I thought he threw better live in person than he did watching him on film. But the major thing with Baker Mayfield is, number one, there are plenty of reported, you know, confirmed uh, you know, bad decisions in terms of, you know, his uh, personality and things like that. You know, you get to the, the stuff that he's done on the field, on the sideline, the stuff away from the field. You know, there was the arrest last spring. Uh, just lots of different things where it, it always seems like there's something there. He comes from an offense that historically does not project very well to the NFL at all. 
Uh, he's obviously extremely undersized as well. So there are a lot of things there with Baker Mayfield that make you wonder and really add another layer of uncertainty to his projection. But those would be the four guys that I would say are definitely going to go in round one. For a fifth guy, I would say Lamar Jackson is absolutely a wild card because of his arm talent, because of his athleticism. He comes from an offense that features NFL-style passing concepts, so uh, I think that will help him. Uh, does need to get a little bit better. A lot of the things we talked about with jo- uh, Josh Allen in terms of accuracy and footwork, he's got to get a lot better uh, in those areas as well. There are sometimes where he gets a little bit hung up in progressions, or even if he doesn't get hung up, it'll be one read and run. He's got to get a little bit better there. There are flashes of him doing it, just like there are flashes of Josh Allen, but it's just a matter of consistency. So those would be the five guys I think have a chance to go in the, in, in the first round. I know there's been some buzz lately some, from uh, Mason Rudolph from Oklahoma State. I would be really, really surprised if that happened. We, we've seen this in, in years past whether it was Tom Savage from Pitt or, you know, Davis Webb last year from Cal ended up going in the third round. Tom Savage was a fourth-round pick. Uh, we've seen this in years past where we try to see another quarterback that's got that late buzz that could go in the first round. I just don't see it with Mason Rudolph. I like the kid. I like the player. I just don't think he's a first-round talent. Gotcha. Good stuff. Hey, Frank, you know, I always try to hit you up with my one or two favorite guys uh, that I want to talk about, and I, I've got an offensive guy and a defensive guy. But, um, you know, as I started to look around and do a little research, I think maybe I, I have over-evaluated them. But uh, I'm, I'm going to throw them out there. How about that? Mike Kosicki, That's here, Bill. the tight end from Penn State on the offense, and that Shaq Griffin, the 6'1", 229-pound linebacker with 4'8", 4'3", speed at UCF. Where do you see those guys? Am I, am I thinking they're uh, better than they are? Some, some don't well, have them even in first round. Yeah, I would say with, with Mike Kosicki, there's, there's a chance that he goes in the first round because I think he's got the highest upside of any of the tight ends in this draft. He was very productive at Penn State, was a guy that has made an impact uh, you know, all the time that he's been on the field. He's been able to be productive in the passing game. He's so good at the catch point. A former basketball player, a high school volleyball player, he's an outstanding leaper. They used him downfield in a lot of vertical passing concepts. And so that value is going to show up at the NFL level. He can win in the passing game, both uh, in contested situations, but also showing flashes of being able to create separation. He's getting a little bit better as a route runner. He's not where he needs to be yet. If he was a little bit more polished, Bill, I think that we'd be talking about him more in the first round. He's not where he needs to be as a blocker right now. He's very similar, honestly, to Zach Ertz coming out of Stanford. Remember, Ertz was a second-round pick. I think Ertz was a better blocker than Gesicki was coming out. So that's going to be the big question with Gesicki. Is he, is he going to get better as a blocker? He's only been playing tight end for a few years. He was a high school receiver. So that is a little bit of the, of the, uh, you know, the knock in terms of uh, his overall projection is that you know, he's still very green there. But overall, this kid is a lot of fun to watch, and he's just so good at the catch point that I think that he's going to be one of the first tight ends off the board. Like I said, I think he's got the highest upside, had an outstanding combine. And then when we talk about outstanding combines, I mean, Shaq Griffin probably stole the show, uh, the linebacker from Central Florida. He's undersized is the big thing. And you you look at at Shaq Griffin, he played off the edge this past year in their 3-4 scheme. That's not what he's going to do at that size. I mean, he's not going to be uh, an every-down pass rusher at the NFL level. So when you look at Shaq Griffin, it's a matter of, all right, how do you, how do you view him? Is he going to be you know, a weak side linebacker for you? Is he going to be a sub-package player and a special teamer? If he's going to be a sub-package player and a special teamer, he's going to be a day-three pick, and he's an outstanding athlete. He's obviously overcome a ton of adversity, only playing uh, with the one hand and, and doing it at a high level. And what he's been able to do over the course of his athletic career has been nothing short of amazing. Um, but that'll be the big thing is how teams ultimately view him. I do think he's probably going to be a day three pick. Um, and, I, you know, I, to me, I, I still view uh, him as a valuable roster player. It's just a matter of how he's going to be used at the next level. Well, friends, since Bill mentioned uh, Mike Kosicki, I was going to ask you about some of the other tight ends. I know Hayden Hurst of South Carolina may be the best prospect this year. The other guys, I guess, Mark Andrews of Oklahoma. And I watched some film on Dallas Goddard of South Dakota State. He looks really good as well. I'm a big fan of Dallas Goddard. And as I said, Mike Kosicki probably has the highest upside. But to me, Dallas Goddard is my favorite tight end in this class. He's 6'5". He's over 255 pounds. Mike Kosicki, he's, he's not a great blocker. Uh, but I think he's shown a little bit more. He's shown more flashes. He's a little bit bigger uh, than Gesicki is. And, and so I think he's got the ability to be a more complete player. 
But one of the things I love about uh, about Dallas Goddard is that, number one, he's gotten better as a route runner from day one up until now, and to me, uh, at an extremely high rate. You know, I, go, I went back, I watched every single target for that kid going back to 2016, his junior season, and seeing where he was then to the end of his junior year. That's why I watched up until the summer. And then watching him again, you see, you see him get a little bit better every game, every week, it seemed like, as a route runner. He's so good at the catch point, very, very reliable hands. He made some outstanding catches over the course of his career, much like Kasiki, and they're very close to be a, bit, a little bit more complete. Hayden Hurst is really intriguing as well. I think he's got a very high floor in terms of, you know, he's going to be used, uh, I think, as a more complete player. He's not a great blocker either, but he gives good effort. He was used in a lot of different ways. I mean, he took carries in the backfield. He was used on jet sweeps as a tight end for South Carolina, which you don't often see at that position. He's a fairly athletic kid. He's really good after the catch. He's just a little bit older. He'll be a 24-year-old rookie, began his career as a minor league baseball player in the Pittsburgh Pirates system. So, uh, he got to college a little bit later to start football, but uh, there's a, a lot of people that are really, really excited about him. He's getting first-round buzz. I would put him behind those other two guys, but wouldn't shock me at all if he went before any of them because that's the buzz that he is getting right now. Hey, Fran, one of the things I noticed in looking over a, a whole bunch of mock drafts is that uh, a lot of guys are showing five and six offensive linemen as first-rounders. Do you see that happening in the – how unusual is that that the O-line guys are now becoming moving back up in the in the rankings? Well, I, you know what it is is that last year's class was so bad. It was a historically bad offensive line group last year in terms of the pure numbers of guys that were selected. And I think that uh, there might be a little bit of course correction there from that standpoint. But this is a good group. The tackles, the pure offensive tackles aren't great. I'm a big fan of Mike McGlinchey from Notre Dame. He's a Philly kid, um, but he's big. He's athletic. He's a technician. There are some times where he's gotten beaten with speed, but I thought it was more an, uh, an aspect of his technique as opposed to you know him just not having the feet and the quickness to be able to play uh, on the outside. I'm a big fan of McGlinchey. I think he's a top 15 player in this class. But then you look on the inside, and that's really where the depth is in this class, Bill. You look at, obviously, Quentin Nelson from Notre Dame, his teammate McGlinchey. Uh, Nelson, to me, is the best overall player in the draft. He's not going to get drafted number one, obviously, but in terms of pure talent at his own position, Quentin Nelson is number one. But you look at other guys that are probably going to go in the first round. You know, you look at Isaiah Wynn from Georgia, Connor Williams from Texas, James Daniels from Iowa, Billy Price from Ohio State. We're hearing more buzz about Frank Ragnow from Arkansas as well. All these guys have first-round ability, and they've got that versatility, that ability to play a number of different positions, guard, center, tackle. Uh, that versatility is going to serve all of those players well. So Colton Miller from UCLA is probably the other tackle that is going to get that first-round buzz extremely athletic, especially considering the guy, I mean, he's 6'8", he's like 320 pounds, and seeing how he was able to move at the combine, I think, has a lot of people very intrigued. A raw talent, a three-year starter who's played both right tackle and left tackle, so uh, there are some really intriguing players up front in this class, and I, and I think that that's really what you're going to see. Is There's either going to be one, one of two things is going to happen, and I hate to put it this way, because obviously one of the two is going to happen. Either there's going to be a run like what we saw last year with the receivers. Right? I remember we saw three receivers go in the top ten right before the Eagles selected at 14 last year. We saw all three go off the board relatively early. Or you're going to see all, a bunch of guys fall because a lot of teams are saying, well, okay, we'll wait because there's depth. So one of the two things is going to happen. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because you have a lot of talented players that are all going to be valued very similarly by NFL teams. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out next Thursday. You bet. Wait, Fran, there's a, there's a couple of huge questions out there. Of course, one is Penquan Barkley, the other being uh, who the Browns are going to pick at number one and number four, and, of course, who the Eagles are going to pick. But what we need to do is we need to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor at the Irish Rover Station House, and then we'll return. We'll talk about that first round. All right. A couple of things you need to know about the Irish Rover Station House in Langhorne, Pennsylvania. Baseball season is now well underway, and during all Phillies games, you can enjoy a stadium tots menu and two-and-a-quarter bud drafts. And don't forget, Mother's Day is fast approaching. It is May 13th, and the Irish Rover has its annual Mother's Day brunch. Make your reservations now. Call 267-560-5240 to reserve a table. This Saturday night, the band Stem Live performs at the Rover. I saw them last year. They are great. And you can always catch flyers Sixers and Phillies games on the Rovers, many TVs. It's the Irish Rover Station House on Bellevue Avenue in Langhorne and on the web at irishroverstationhouse.com. And hey, Bill and friend, these guys 
are now Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. And hey, I got a quick question for Fran. Fran, I know you're a hoops fan, and uh, one of our listeners, Fred Hugo, who joins us occasionally to talk about basketball and fantasy football, wants to know if you trust the process. One thousand percent trust the process. I am. Oh, I am sixered. I am sixered up right now. I am all <laughs> kinds of excited right now. Oh, I did that in part boy, just to get Fred, Bill all Fred, riled up because he's not a process guy. So, <laughs> good answer, friend. Good oh. answer. Oh, friend, friend, friend. Hey, let's. I'm get sorry, back Bill. That's <laughs> all right. Hey, let's go ahead and uh, let's talk some some. First round, I don't know if we got time to go through all 32 of them, but certainly uh, start us off with the Cleveland Browns and that number one and number four pick. See where you where you see that going, of course, and let's talk about that Saquon Barkley. You know, this isn't the way I would go, guys, but it, there is so much buzz right now about the Cleveland Browns going with Josh Allen at number one, and I think the the, the justification behind it is that John Dorsey, the new GM there in Cleveland, he is a traits guy, meaning that he wants the guys with the high upside. He did it in Kansas City uh, with a number of different picks. You can go back to last year. They selected Patrick Mahomes, even the, the Villanova kid, uh, Tano Passigno, large defensive end with all kinds of upside, just not a finished product. He was a second-round pick. No one really viewed Passigno as a second-round pick. John Dorsey obviously did. They acquired him in the second round of that draft. And you go back, D. Ford was a trait guy. You got Eric Fisher, the number one pick from Central Michigan, wasn't viewed as a, a more finished product than Luke Jokel, but they went with Fisher instead out of Central Michigan. And I think that's where I think a lot of people are starting to think, you know what, they're not going to play the quarterback right away. They want Tyrod Taylor, who they traded a third-round pick for, to be the starting quarterback. Let's let Josh Allen sit to the side and learn from Todd Haley and Hugh Jackson, and we'll try and develop them. And it seems like that's the direction they're going to go. If that's the case, and if Josh Allen goes one, I find it hard to believe that, that the New York Giants wouldn't take Sam Darnold. And to me, if the New York Giants are staying put at two, it's to take a quarterback. And if they, if they don't stay at two, they're going to trade back, and then we'll, you know, they're going to get a huge haul of picks. If they stay put at two, and select Saquon Barkley or Quentin Nelson or Bradley Chubb, yeah, they're going to they're gonna get a good player, a really good player. But to me, I think they're missing out because either you're, you're missing out either on your quarterback in the future because you've got a 37-year-old quarterback or you're missing out on getting picks to help you get a quarterback in the future when you need it down the road. And so to me, that, that would be uh, a mistake, and we'll see what happens and how this plays out. But if Josh Allen goes one to Cleveland, I think there's a, a pretty solid chance that Sam Donald is the pick uh, and the new quarterback of the future in New York at number two. And then in terms of Saquon Barkley, from that point out, I don't think he'd be a Jet. I think the, the Jets will take Baker Mayfield. And I don't think he'd end up in Cleveland. A lot of the, the things I'm hearing are that, that it'll be Bradley Chubb. That seems to be a lot of the buzz in the media right now is that it'll be Bradley Chubb going number four to Cleveland to pair with Miles Garrett last year. And if that's the case, I think Saquon Barkley could end up at number five to Denver. And I think that would be uh, he'd go there with John Elway, and they they kind of rally the wagons around uh, Saquon Barkley and get the rest of that crew going and seeing if they can get him with Case Keenum and, and make a run at, at another playoff berth and try and see if they can win that AFC West, which honestly is, is still kind of up for grabs. I know Kansas City has won that division, um, but I think that division is very much up for grabs. Well, Fran, because I'm a Penn State alum, I've got to ask you a little more about Barkley. Uh, he's the obvious name as the top running back that will be drafted, maybe four, maybe five. Ray Dinger calls Barkley the best player at any position this year. How good do you think Barkley is? What is his upside? And I don't want to see him go to the Giants or the Browns, by the way, but I may not get my wish. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I think when you look at Saquon Barkley, you know, what makes him so intriguing is just how explosive he is at, at his size. You know, he's – a naturally, he's 233 pounds, but he verted 41 inches. That's like, that's like unheard of for guys that size. And he ran 4-3, again, unheard of at that size. And that just gives you an idea of his pure straight-line explosiveness. And that, to me, is his number one trait. He's not this guy that's got outstanding vision. And to me, vision is the most important part of being a running back. But that being said, we talked about this last year. Leonard Fournette was my number one back last year. Vision was not his best trade. You go back a few years earlier, a couple years before that, Todd Gurley came out of Georgia. He was a top-ten pick. Vision was not his best trade either, and he's obviously been very successful. So the thing is, is that Saquon Barkley, that 
yeah, he's, he doesn't have the best vision. If things are a little bit cloudy for him, which they would be in New York, uh, I don't know that he'd have a ton of success. But if things are well-defined for him, and if you've got the ability to get him out in space or you know, create an open lane for him, he's going to take every single blade of green grass in front of him. Uh, he can impact the game as a receiver. He can impact the game as a returner. Uh, I think his versatility will serve him very well. He's not a naturally powerful runner. I mean, he's, he's naturally powerful, but he doesn't run powerful. And so that's the, the other knock on Saquon Barkley. To me, if you're going to stack him against some of these other backs that we've seen, I think he's probably on that Todd Gurley tier of players in terms of he's a really, really great talent. He's a top-five player in this draft. But I don't know that you're going to look at him and say, yeah, he's the uh, generational type of prospect in terms of uh, we'll never see another player like him, and uh, we have him in recent memory. I think that he's pretty comparable to these guys that we've seen in the last few years. Interesting. Hey, hey, Fran, Dallas Cowboys, they released Des Bryant. Are they certainly a a wide receiver pick, and is Calvin Ridley going to be their guy? Uh, I, I A lot of people feel differently about Calvin Ridley. I think that he's going to go higher than 19, and so I don't know that he'll necessarily be there. Uh, he is a little bit older, and I think he'll be a 24-year-old rookie. So, um, you know, some people are knocking him on the age, but – I'm a big fan of Calvin Ridley. Honestly, I think that he's kind of like a, a rich man, Nelson Aguilar, in terms of what he brings uh, and his physical skill set. I wouldn't say that it's a definite that Dallas goes wide receiver, though. I think that they've got a lot of other holes. Um, they were, they had to, because of what they're paying the players that aren't even on the roster right now, they had to let some good players go. They let Anthony Hitchens go. They've got a hole at linebacker. They've got a hole at pass rusher. They haven't been able to extend DeMarcus Lawrence yet. He's still on the franchise tag. They've got a hole at safety. They moved Byron Jones from safety to corner, so they have a hole in the back end there. Obviously, the holes at wide receiver. So uh, there are some holes there on that roster, and I, I don't know that they're going to necessarily say we've got to take a receiver here and say that that's definitely where they're going to go. Uh, it will be interesting to see what they decide to do because uh, I think they can go a number of different directions. There's some buzz that they could go in the secondary. All right, since we're talking about the NFC East teams, let's talk about the Redskins. They picked number 13. Uh, where do you see them going, friend? I think it's going to be a defensive lineman. You know, I think that especially on a nose tackle. They went Jonathan Allen last year, a player that we talked about at length, uh, a player that can play inside and outside. And in that 3-4 scheme, he's going to be a defensive end for them. But I think they really could use some help at nose tackle. And there's going to be two players that I think could be available for them that make a ton of sense. Uh, Vita Vea from Washington, who is – Really powerful. I mean, the guy is six three and a half. He's three hundred and fifty pounds. He played on their punt coverage team in Washington. Like freak show athlete for a guy that is that big and that powerful. Um, and I think that he would make a lot of sense for them in their three four. And then Dayron Payne. I actually like Dayron Payne a lot more than Vea. Uh, Vea, I'd, I'd say, is a top twenty type of player. That to me, Dayron Payne is a top eight player in this class. I think he's uh, got the ability to be a three down player. He's violent. He's aggressive. He's got the ability to play sideline to sideline. The production wasn't always there, but in that 3-4 scheme as a nose tackle, he wasn't always asked to be the guy that's racking up all the TFLs and all the sacks. Uh, I'm not too worried about Dayron Payne. I think he's going to be a really good pro. I think he would fit well, and I, I, you know, I think there may be some interest there. If they don't go D-line, let's say their guy's off the board or you know, they decide to go another route, they're going to take a running back relatively early in this class. So Darius Geis is a player they've been linked to often during this draft process, and he's a player I could see go off the board to them uh, sometime during that range as well. Hey, Frank, a team that's kind of intrigued me here toward the end of the season and, and in the off season is those San Francisco 49ers. Uh, I think they have the ninth pick. Um, they're getting better, and they're getting better pretty pretty fast. Um, they're committed now, obviously, to the quarterback. Where, where do you see them going? I, I find them intriguing. I think that they're going to go with whoever the best players are. You know, that was something that they went with last year. Uh, you know, they were obviously very aggressive in terms of what they did in the draft. But, you know, they, were, they did a really good job, I thought, of targeting players that really fit, A, the, the cultures they wanted to bring in terms of their on-the-field personality. They wanted high-effort guys, guys that played sideline to sideline, that brought that toughness. You know, John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan both agree in terms of their vision for the team. And then players that fit Kyle Shanahan's way of playing offense. So, you, know, you look at these players that are probably going to be on the board. To me, like, Dayron Payne makes a ton of sense for San Francisco, and he could be the guy that I think he goes top ten and everybody's going, like, why, why, would, they, why would they take this guy in the top ten? 
I think he would fit perfectly there. They need a nose tackle. Uh, that would make a ton of sense. But then you look around, obviously they have, they've got the issues now uh, with Ruben Foster. There's Roquan Smith, uh, I think fits them to a T as well. You know, he's a guy that can play sideline to sideline. I love uh, his instincts as a linebacker. He's got the ability to play downhill at a very high level, which fit really well in that scheme. I think Roquan Smith makes a ton of sense for them. Um, there's a bunch of players. You know, Denzel Ward as well would make some sense. Any of these uh, the free safeties I think would make sense there. Minka Fitzpatrick. So uh, I think that there's a few players uh, that really would make sense for them. They can go wide receiver as well, maybe a little bit early for a Calvin Ridley, but they value yards after catching that offense. They could use uh, some more help at wide receiver for Jimmy Garoppolo. So uh, that's certainly an area that they could address as well. Now, Fran, I'm not going to ask you for your official prediction yet regarding the Eagles, but if they stay at 32 and decide to go running back, we know that uh, Saquon Barkley will be long gone. What other running backs <laughs> might be available? LSU's Darius Geis, perhaps Georgia's Sony Michelle. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I, don't have an official prediction for how what the Eagles are going to do. I have no idea, but you know, and it's tough because you know, last year we talked about this and they were picking at 14, right? So you can kind of narrow down and say, all right, there's probably like yeah. four or five guys that we're realistically talking about at this point. You know, picking at 32, we we've, we've never had this before. There are so many players that I think that could theoretically be, especially in this class, because I think that there's a lot of really good players that are in that, say, you know, 18 to 50 range. And since it's going to be so closely uh, graded by a lot of people, I think we could see, you know, a number of players, you know, ideally drop to the Eagles. You know, could a Mike Vallon be there at 32? Could a Leighton Vander Esch from Boise State be there at 32? So it's tough to, to really put a prediction on it. Um, but I'm excited about a lot of these guys, and I'd be happy to, to talk about a lot of these options. But I think when, in terms of the running back position, yeah, Darius Geis absolutely would be, the, you know, in terms of uh, being in the mix, he's extremely talented. If you're going, I mentioned this with Quentin Nelson, if you're going based purely off of pure skill level at the position, I think that Darius Geis is a top 10, top 15 player in the draft. He's, not, he's probably not going to get drafted that way because of the value and the perceived value of the running back position, but uh, he's extremely competitive. He is an angry runner, a tone setter at the position. He is great downhill. He's got really good vision. He catches the ball naturally out of the backfield. I know he wasn't used all, that way all the time with LSU, but he is a guy who's got really natural hands. I love everything about the way that Darius Geis plays the game. He's not this you know, great athlete like a Saquon Barkley, but just a, such an angry, competitive, powerful runner. Uh, I'm a big fan of Darius Geis. And other running backs I think are being talked about in that way. I would say Sony Michelle, a uh, versatile pass catcher, can be used in a lot of different ways, an outstanding pass protector as well. Uh, so you know for a fact that he can play on third down. And then Ronald Jones from, from USC, you know, he's drawn some comparisons to Jamal Charles, the former Pro Bowl player with the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, he's got that explosive breakaway speed, and that's something that uh, can serve a lot of offenses very well. Uh, Jamal Charles obviously had a lot of success under Doug Peterson when he was the offensive coordinator out there with the Chiefs. So if Doug Peterson views Jamal Charles or views Ronald Jones to be a Jamal Charles type of player, you could see that transition happening very well. So uh, there, those would be three running backs, I think, that are, would probably be in the discussion, whether it's 32 or a trade down uh, in that row somewhere in that area. Hey, Fran, do you, with the Eagles only having this one pick in round one and then going all the way to round four, do you feel like they, they value this draft enough to make some moves to try to move up, or do you see them sitting pretty tight here with their first pick and, uh, and waiting out till, uh, till the fourth round? I would say that if they stay at 32, you know they think they're getting a great player. Yeah, and they're going to let that board come to them. Yeah, because that's really how everyone's been talking about it is that, you know, you're, you're picking at 32, and let's say a player falls to them. Uh, I mean, that's what we were just talking about a few minutes ago. A player falls to them that they had graded as a top 15 player in the draft. And after that, it's a, it's a drop-off. Well, they're going to stay put, and they're going to take that guy that they feel is a top 15 player in the draft. But let's say uh, they're picking at 32, and now they've got six players graded that are all pretty close together and they've got the ability to trade down seven or eight spots or nine spots, they feel pretty good that those six players are probably still going to be there and they're going to get good value. They, would make the, they try to make the move to trade down. It's a matter of making sure that you've got the ability to trade down, you need somebody to trade up. But uh, I think that's really how they're going to play this, is that you know, it's, they're going to let the board come to them, and if the, if the situation calls for it, they'll stay there and they'll pick a great player, or uh, they'll trade back and be able to get some value, reacquire some picks, and, uh, continue to bolster the roster. 
All right, friend, every year we ask you this. Uh, give us a couple of sleeper picks, guys who probably won't go to the third or fourth round, but you're getting great value with those picks. Give us a couple or three names. So I would say at the uh, the running back position, this guy's not like a huge, huge sleeper, but Nick Chubb to me is, is a guy that I'm a big, big fan of. I love his running style. He's so physical, so competitive. He's one of the strongest runners in this class. Needs to get a little bit better on third down. That's the big question for him. But I think if you're a downhill run team, which uh, the Eagles can be and, and have been in the past, I think that, that he would serve, you know, he'd be able to serve those teams really, really well. Uh, Naheem Hines at the running back position is another guy that excites me a lot, a former wide receiver with track speed. He ran 4-3 at the combine. He's a great track star in college as well. So, you know, he's got outstanding hands for the for the running back position. The ability to be used in a lot of different ways, uh, that speed and also shows up on special teams as a return man as well. Uh, you go to the offensive line, and there, and there are a few guys that I think are really, really impressive sleepers in this class. I think Austin Corbett from Nevada is a player that could go a lot higher than people are giving him credit for. He was a four-year starter, a tackle, that a lot of people think will make the transition inside as a guard or a center at the next level and be able to do it at a very high level. You look at linebacker. I love uh, this kid from South Carolina State, Darius Leonard, 6'2", 235 pounds. He's a four-year starter. Didn't have any FBS offers coming out of high school. Only had a walk-on offer at Clemson. Decided to take the scholarship offer. Went to the lower level of competition. And all he did was produce at an extremely high level. He plays sideline to sideline. He's instinctive. He's not a great athlete, but he's a good athlete. The ability to be able to play uh, at the NFL level requires that you've got that, that requisite athleticism. He's got that. I love his instincts and his toughness. He brings a swagger to the position. I'm a big fan of Darius Leonard. Uh, and then at corner, there are a few guys that I love. And to me, one of the deepest position groups in this class is the nickel corner spot. You know, And to me, there are so many players from the top of the draft and say in round one all the way down to the sixth, seventh round that can come in and play in the slot at a high level. So it'll be interesting to see uh, where those guys go. But for some guys that I think are mid-round guys, MJ Stewart from North Carolina played outside. He was a three-year starter for North Carolina. He's got great instincts. He's one of the best man coverage players in this draft. He just doesn't have great speed, and he doesn't have great size. So that's why I think a lot of people view him as more of an inside player. He's a really good run defender. He's instinctive. He's got great ball skills. I really love MJ Stewart. And then you go to DJ Reed from Kansas State. He brings a lot of those similar traits. He's undersized, and he doesn't have great long speed, but he is really, really competitive. I love watching that kid play. And then he's got outstanding ball skills as well. So uh, to me, you look at those slot corners, there's a lot of really intriguing players that I think will be there in those middle rounds as well. Well, Fran, before we close out with you, uh, are you willing to go ahead and tell us, knowing what you know now, who we're picking at 32? <laughs> I'm telling you guys, I literally I wouldn't even want to put my name on a player because there's just no way to predict. <laughs> I, I, there are so many, there are just so many players that I, that really, really intrigue me. Uh, you know, whether you're talking about the receiver position with you know DJ Moore and Christian Kirk, obviously a Calvin Ridley, but you know at running back we talked about those names. Offensive line with you know, McGlinchey and Colton Miller and Tyrell Crosby and Isaiah Wynn and, you know, defensive line and linebacker. There there are so many intriguing players in this class. So uh, it would be really tough with the Eagles picking at 32 to really be able to put my name on how this draft is going to be able to pan out. All right. We'll let you off the hook on that one because we still have the tape of you your uh, breakdown of Carson Wentz, and we're, we're going to run with that. We'll, we'll keep that there. There we go. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Uh, all right. Hey, Fran, again, before uh, – before we let you go, let everyone know where they can listen to you, Eagles Eye, the breakdown of the draft you've been doing and all that. Tell everyone where they can find you. Yep, so you can listen. I've got two podcasts that you can listen to on a weekly basis. The Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, uh, which is available you know, on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts, or on PhiladelphiaEagles.com or the Eagles mobile app. Uh, the Journey to the Draft podcast, where it's really a draft focus with an Eagles spin. You can definitely listen to me there. Uh, and then also just go to my Twitter account, you know, at FDuffy3 on Twitter. I post all of the content there, uh, whether it's, you know, all of the X's and O's stuff that we do uh, over on PhiladelphiaEagles.com, whether it's the Eagle Eye in the Sky or, you know, right now I'm in the thick of the Meet the Prospect series with different prospect breakdowns every single day. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun, and everything can be found right there on that Twitter page. Awesome. Well, Fran, we appreciate you joining us. Uh, Great stuff as always. You're always on top of it. Go Birds. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Fran.
Hey, Chad, you and I have a bone of contention in regards to those Sixers. Somebody, somebody we probably shouldn't name, I guess, he wrote an article on phillypressboxradio.com insinuating that the Miami Heat weren't going to show up for this series. You know, and the Sixers going to win in five games. I think it was easy was the word that was used. Uh, the Sixers responded to that in game two by not being able to hit water in the ocean from a boat. Well, someone whom I will name, it's Bill Furman, apparently didn't read the article that closely. Yeah, I picked the Sixers to win the series in five, but I also mentioned that the Heat, like the Sixers, are a deep team. I called them a pretty decent team also. I also wrote that Dwayne Wade, despite being 36, can still get it going. And boy, did he get it going Monday night. The only thing I wrote that you remembered, apparently, was me saying the Sixers would win the series, quote, pretty easily. But I said nothing of the sort that the Heat wouldn't show up. I just felt and still feel that the 76ers are the better team, and I will accept your apology. Well, there won't be one because uh, I believe what it says. The pick is no surprise pretty easily whether or not Embiid gets back right away. And now everybody's wanting Embiid back because they stunk it up in game two. Even though they still had a chance to win that game, they were throwing bricks all night. Okay, and that's because they were, you know, defensed better by Miami and Brett Brown didn't do a good enough coaching job, if you ask me, of making adjustments. Normally, he does a great job at halftime, and the Sixers own the third quarter. This year, I think they outscored Miami this time in uh, game two by a couple of points in the third quarter, but they still didn't really have an answer for what Miami was doing defensively. Yeah, they miss Embiid. Yeah, I would love to see him back Thursday night. They say he is still doubtful, so that means there's a 20 or 25% chance that he's going to play in game three. I hope that he does play, but... I'm still picking the Sixers. It might take six games instead of five, but I'm still saying the Sixers win this series and advance to round two. Well, I'm going to tell you what I took away from that second game, and that was there was a lot of lack of discipline on their offensive end. Not only were they not making those three-point shots, it's because they weren't really taking good three-point shots. There was a lot of off-balance throw ups almost like they they came out a little bit too confident that they were going to be able to throw them down like they did in the first game and they weren't falling and they they didn't do anything to adjust except keep missing and yeah i agree they did, they, yeah they just uh they didn't adjust to the game plan and or, or to the success of the game i should say the way the game was going and that uh and that hurt them in the end and they really did miss Embiid in game two because they had nobody able to, you know, post up. Simmons can do it sometime, but for whatever reason, he didn't do it. So they never were able to get down low. And when you're not hitting the shots from the outside, you've got a problem. So they've got to make some That's adjustments right. big time for game three. They do. And, and they didn't get those, like I said, they didn't get those same looks from the outside. It wasn't like they, they just missed a lot. They were, as you mentioned, they were defensed much better to make those shots tougher shots, and obviously you're not going to make them all. And uh, in this case, they didn't make many of them. Yeah, it's it's a series now for sure, and the Sixers better at least split in Miami, or we're going to be feeling pretty bad this weekend. Yes, well, and that's what I say. I think uh, I'm giving you a hard time about your article just for the fun of it, but I think uh, well, I think we're a little hasty to be looking at the second round until you can get through the first round, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. One game at a time, one series at a time, and game three is all of a sudden very important. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and interesting that uh, he did it during the regular season, but that Dwayne Wade all of a sudden comes back on certain nights, and instead of looking 36, he acts like he's 26, and uh, he took it to the, to the Sixers. Yeah, he is still pretty good. I mean, not all the time, but I'll tell you, when he does get in the groove, he can still do it, like I said. And, boy, he was fantastic on both ends of the court. He made that huge defensive play, too, once the Sixers got to within two points with about four minutes left. So kudos to Dwayne Wade, but I hope he doesn't do it again. Yeah, that's right. I'm with you. I'm with you. Well, you know, they'll be back in action, uh, what, Thursday night, tomorrow night in Miami, yes. 7 o'clock, and uh, need, need a big win there. And speaking of that, speaking of big wins, the Flyers sure need one tonight, and they are behind already 2 nothing in the first period, Jed. And, uh, boy, oh, boy, they got to have this one. But I, I will say this. Uh, I thought it was a must-win before this game, but Brian Elliott took some pretty serious heat after the last game, and, I, and I'm and i not saying it's on him. That's, uh, 
they were shorthanded and they lacked discipline too in that game. Yeah, one or two goals maybe were on him, but no, you're right. That was a lots of blame to go around game, and everybody needs to play better or this series will be over long before next week's show. I mean, they took too many penalties, obviously, and, you know, I know all Philadelphia sports fans hate Sidney Crosby, but I'll tell you, our buddy Boop, Bob Vitone, the other day posted the stat that Crosby has played 39 games at the Wells Fargo Center going into tonight, into tonight. And in those 39 games, he's got 21 goals, 37 assists for 58 points. That is a big-time player coming up big. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we can hate Crosby because he's, you know, we think he's a punk and all that, but we certainly can't hate him because he can't play. Holy cow. And Sean Couturier not playing this evening also because uh, that freak injury in practice yesterday. So uh, that's a blow to the Flyers offensively and defensively. Well, the thing the thing we got to see tonight, I'm really interested to see this. Uh, Wayne Simmons played 12 minutes and 38 seconds the other night. Um, there didn't seem to be a reason. What what we got was it was a matchup thing. Um, I don't get that. He's no longer on the first the power play unit. Uh, Nolan Patrick has taken that spot. Uh, if he's not hurt, of course, hockey players won't tell you they're hurt. But if he's not hurt, what is wrong with Wayne Simmons? Well, I saw his picture on the milk carton that I used for my cereal this morning, so if that tells you anything. Well, um, yeah. I mean, I think it's probably... He's missing in action, pal. He, he is missing in action. And I guess the other thing that really surprises me, and I... The Flyer fans, the Philly fans, are awful quick to turn their back on Claude Giroux. And honestly, maybe it's because I'm a Giroux fan. I don't know. I didn't think he played all that awful. He's on the ice all the time trying to make plays. Um, you don't win all your games. But to to blame this on Giroux is uh, really surprising to me. Yeah, I'm not going to blame G, but it just looks bad when, you know, he's the captain who had a great season – and the star player on the other team, Crosby, lights it up and plays pretty darn good in all three of the games. And Giroux had the good game on uh, Friday, I guess it was, game two. But he hasn't really played that well in games one or three. And it's maybe not fair to give him that criticism, but it's the playoffs. And you're going to get that kind of criticism when you don't come through. Yeah, well, when your team doesn't come through. Yeah. I think that's really the key. If the, if the, if he didn't score another point, the Flyers win the series, it's going to be okay. Right, um, but he is the captain. You know, so. He is the captain. And, you know, they're saying the same thing about that Alexander Ovechkin down there in Washington, too. They're, they're crucifying him as well. But uh, I find that interesting that we're quick to turn our backs. One other question I have for you on the Flyers. Uh, was Sean Couturier not playing tonight because being injured in practice? I want to talk to our man Bill Meltzer and some of our hockey guys, Brian Prop, some of those others, and find out, is it standard operating procedure in the National Hockey League when you're in the first round of the playoffs to be basically having full-scale practices between games? You know, in the NFL, they get toward the end of the season, they almost never put on pads. This Eagles team was a little different. They asked to put the pads back on, but normally – you're shutting it down and, and going out and doing your casual skates and your, you know, your skull sessions, not out there physically practicing. I don't know the answer to that, but, yeah, maybe a Meltzer or a Proper can let us know. Yeah, maybe hockey is done a little bit differently than, uh, than I know about, but I find that hard to believe. And, of course, that's, what, uh, that's how Couturier got hurt in a, in a uh, practice drill. Well, he said, we don't have a lot of time, but we have to talk about those 10-6 and six Phillies. Chet, there are only four teams in the National League playing over 600 baseball, and one of them are those fighting Phils. Yeah, as we speak, they've won seven of their last eight, nine of 11 to get to that 10-6 and six mark. And if the season ended right now, Bill, they would be the number one wild card team. Of course, the season is, in fact, only one-tenth gone, so a long way to go. But, yeah, there have been a lot of positives the last two weeks not the least of which has been the starting pitching. A couple of big series coming up now, a four-game set against the Pirates, who are playing pretty well so far in the early going, and then the NL West leading Arizona D-backs. So we'll know more about the team over the next week. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I think they still use too many pitchers. They used, what, seven, I think, again, last night to get ten innings. But uh, 
and and the it's a crapshoot who's going to be in the lineup each night. But at the end of the day, if you get W's, that's what that's what you're there for. Yep, and one other positive. Odubel Herrera had the mistake the other night, uh, kind of trying to stretch a single into a double and then letting up as he went into second. He got tagged out, cost them probably a run. Um, but he apologized, and Reese Hoskins took him aside and, you know, said, hey, you got to do better than that. And so two things, Odubel fessing up to his mistake and Reese Hoskins showing that he is a leader despite being only a big leaguer for a half a season. Yeah, I tell you what, that's that's really good to see. And uh kind of excited about that Hoskins Hoskins is going to be that guy and they need to have him in the lineup and they need to uh they also need to have that Scott Kingry in the lineup and turn him loose and let him play yes they do uh, and one other thing I wanted to mention to you even though he lost the other day that uh two to one game that Aaron Nola he is uh he's out of the shoots pretty good Chet two 2.22 ERA already uh after four starts yeah, Nola's doing great. Nick Pavetta has done well the last three starts, giving up, I think, only one run in each. So things are starting to improve and uh, look pretty good for this team. Yes, they are. All right, Mr. Chesco, we are running almost out of time already. So uh, let, let's talk about who is going to be before our parting shots. Tell us who's coming to Philly Press Box Radio next week. Two real good ones next week, Bill. We are joined for the first time by another great Sixers reporter from Philly.com. Not Keith Pompey, but Sarah Todd. Hopefully the Sixers will have eliminated the Heat by next Wednesday. We shall see. In addition to Sarah Todd, we're going to talk with Fox 43's Andrew Callista for some final thoughts about the NFL draft and for his assessment of the Penn State blue-white game, which takes place this Saturday. Awesome. Very good stuff. Looking forward to that. Well, hey, we are getting close. How about a parting shot for you before we shut it down? Yeah, I wrote about this on our website on Monday, but in a nutshell, Hal Greer, who died last weekend at the age of 81, was a real favorite of mine as a young Sixers fan. He was a 10-time NBA All-Star and a key reason the Sixers won the 1967 championship. That season, the 6'2 sharpshooting guard averaged 22 points a game and then nearly 28 points a game in the Sixers' 15 playoff contests en route to the title. Greer played with just one franchise during his 15-year pro career, the 76ers and their predecessor, the Syracuse Nationals, who drafted him in 1958 out of Marshall. Even some true 76ers fans probably don't know it, but all these years later, Greer is still the franchise's all-time leading scorer, 21,586 career points. He's also their all-time leader in games played and field goals, and he's ninth in points per game at 19.2. He may also be the only NBA player who would regularly jump shoot his free throws. I love that. In 1976, just three years after he played his final game, Greer became the first player to have his number retired by the 76ers. He was elected to the Basketball Hall of Fame in 82. He told the Philly Daily News several years ago, I would like to be remembered as a great, consistent player. Well, that is certainly how I will remember number 15. Rest in peace, Hal Greer. And the same... The same for another one of my childhood favorites, wrestling legend Bruno Sammartino. We will miss you, Bruno. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think back when uh, we did our Hall of Fame show and uh, I used my selection to put that Hal Greer in the Hall of Fame, I said uh, that I thought he was the greatest sixer of all time, and I still do. And I think uh, very well missed. Even even the great Allen Iverson uh, did not break Hal Greer's records, and, and Iverson was around a lot longer than Wilt, Dr. J and Charles Barkley and all those other guys, and Hal still holds the records. So uh, hats great off player. to you, Mr. Greer. Rest in peace. All right, yep. Jet, with that, we've reached the top of the hour, so let's thank our special guest, Fran Duffy, Irish Rover Station House, and Bob Sullivan's LikeYourAge.com for their continued support of the show. For Jim Chetesco, this is Bill Furman. We hope you enjoyed the show. We'll join Philly Press Box Radio next Wednesday, April 25th at 7 p.m. You can listen to our website, phillypressboxradio.com, our Facebook page, or on the Internet at www.blogtalkradio.com slash phillypressboxradio, or on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Mixcloud. High hopes, Philadelphia sports fan, Philadelphia Eagles Super Bowl 52 champions. You.